Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. If you're watching on YouTube right now, this is focuscompounding.com, uh, which is our free website with investment write-ups and blogs going all the way back to 2005. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you could click that invest with us tab and it will uh, take you to a page where you could learn everything you want to learn about that. And of course, uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Focused Compound, which is the best place to get everything that we push out into the world. If you like the email segment of this podcast where we take listener emails and discuss them on the pod, uh, you could shoot over a email to focuscompounding at gmail.com. Uh, keep it concise. And if it's a, a common question or something I think a lot of people could benefit from, we will pull it for the podcast and go over it on our weekly show. So last week's pod, Jeff, we spent a lot of time talking about Ted Weschler's investment in Dillard's. And then the next day, I was getting some emails from people and I actually got one from you as well. Uh, because the Wall Street Journal, they actually did a article, put up an article on Dillard's titled, This Department Store Stock Has Trounced Apple, Amazon, and Tesla. My question is to you, Jeff, to people from the Wall Street Journal, do they listen to the podcast? <laughs> what do you think? This was one day after. I mean, I kind of yeah, tweeted it out joking, but I was yeah. like, this is, <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's some like more in-depth research here. They're reaching out to people and stuff. So odds of that happening, no, just kind of a funny coincidence. Um, but what did you think of this article? Kind of funny timing, huh? Yeah, it was funny timing. And actually after the podcast, I also looked at Dillard's for what things like we hadn't talked about. And mm -hmm. I... Uh, because as we were recording, there was also things I was noticing on QuickFS and everything that we didn't spend much time talking about. We talked about how cheap it was, uh, basically in terms of free cash flow to enterprise value and in terms of like price per square foot. We didn't talk about the fact that I think for seven or eight years, um, like their SG&A in dollar spending is about the same as it was like eight years ago or something, um, which is... Uh, you know, it's about, it's, they're, they're down to about the same levels. Whereas we've talked about like village supermarket and I've said, you know, um, actually their performance probably on a gross basis may even be a little better than Dillard's, but the constant mm -hmm. increase in SGNA over 10 years or something is their problem. Obviously Amazon, that's their problem is a lot of added expenses. So even if they grow a little bit now, their, their earnings go down because they have s such rapid increases in expenses. And then the other thing which we touched on, which you, you know, highlighted, when we were talking about, it, but we didn't go into a lot of discussion of is the uh, incredible amount of buybacks over the years. And both of those things mm -hmm. were obvious before COVID, you know, they had good SGNA control before COVID. And then also they had uh, heavy buybacks. They were, we were on a list of like the most uh, companies that buy back the most stock. Do you think you see that more so in family ran businesses? I mean, this is essentially a family ran company, um, owner operator, pass it down to his kids. Do you think that's more common in that? I mean, or does that 
not necessarily true because we've spoken a lot about Village, for example, mm-hmm. um, that is a family-run business. And, well, they actually haven't managed their cost structure as good as you would like uh, to see. Yeah. Um, I think... Well, I mean, in terms of, well, first of all, in terms of the buybacks, I think you see just like unusual cap allocation for family more likely. So sometimes that means not issuing shares. Sometimes that means buying back. And sometimes that means, you know, doing other things like just hoarding cash and stuff like that. Um, in terms of the SGNA, I don't know. Um, some are good at it. Some aren't. It, I mean, it, it probably depends on their background there. Um, yeah, companies like Village and Walmart and some others um, have had would have had okay sort of performance if they had been able to manage their expenses better as well as Dillard's. Um, obviously Dillard's is extreme though, because to be able to keep your SGNA at the same level that it was a long time ago is very hard to do. The other thing, if we go to the cash flow statement, I think we can see this because this jumped out at me, I believe if this is right. Um, yeah. So where do you see the line for stock-based compensation? It is not on here on QuickFS. Right. Which means that they're not issuing stock options. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, that's huge and uncommon, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Amazon mm-hmm. is a good example. Amazon, if they didn't issue stock, would be obviously having much better results. Um, so, it, just huge differences there. So, um, do you, do do you think, I think it's interesting to sort of explain why the whole stock-based comp thing is a sham and how companies sort of manipulate the whole thing. So it doesn't show up in their earnings. So let's say, for example, they're going to hire somebody for, you know, a million dollars in total comp. They may give you like what, $250,000 or 500 grand or whatever the numbers are in cash today that flows Mm -hmm. through the income statement, but then they'll also issue you perhaps the other half or the other 750 that you could go around and sell today in the market. So it's basically the same amount. Um, Of course you could hold it, but perhaps you're going to sell it today. And then of course that doesn't have to run through their income statement. So in total, you're being compensated a million bucks or whatever numbers you wanna use. But of course, the companies, they just don't have to show that uh, in their earnings because, well, they only have to show the 250 or 500 they paid you, the other uh, 750 or 500 that was given to you in stock that you sold in the open market. Well, that you know runs through the uh, cash flow statement there. However, from an EPS perspective and what Wall Street and analysts and everybody cares about, well, it doesn't have to run through the income statement, which is why Buffett's been criticizing stock-based comp for, I mean, years now. Right. So going back 20 years or something, it wouldn't have hurt your earnings. Now what's happened is that companies basically don't report earnings, companies like Amazon stuff, um, or people ignore the earnings. So we look at two things, which is some form of adjusted EBITDA usually, which takes out stock-based mm-hmm. compensation. And... Um, free cash flow. And this is a warning that I have when we look at the free cash flow thing is that many people are calculating free cash flow by using cash flow from operations minus CapEx. So like on a line like this, they would go, okay, well, cash flow from operations was whatever in in 2023. Then I go to property planning equipment. I subtract that out. What I'm left over with is free cash flow. And that wouldn't be a very bad guess if there wasn't stock-based compensation. But the problem is that um, the amount of shares is going to go up or down over time. And if it goes up over time, 
then that's a constant lag in your investment results. So if you have a company, it could, you know, could be Amazon or whatever, if it issues a couple percent of the company every year, um, you can certainly say, I'll deal with that separately. And I think that's a good way of doing it, of saying, I'm not going to take out the price because there's complications as to how it's adjusted for, uh, saying how much the charge is. And I think that that's unrealistic to some extent. Um, so the problems are, there's a couple problems. One is obviously if I'm interested in buying the stock, I actually think the stock is worth more than it's shown for anywhere on the statements because I'm appraising it at a higher level, presumably. Sort of like how I say you should always be in favor of a buyback instead of a dividend in a stock you own because if you really just want the dividend, you should sell the stock because if it's so overvalued, why are you holding it? You know, Same logic. It's not that everyone should, uh, that anyone who issues stock, that it's actually issuing stock that's um, undervalued. But if you're buying the company, which is when we're talking this podcast, that's what people are usually looking for as a stock to buy. The stock-based compensation is actually even worse than it appears to be. So a good way of doing it is how much do they dilute in percentage terms over time? Because that's something that's easy mm-hmm. for people to kind of do the math on. Okay, well, if they dilute by 2.5% all the time and I'm going to own it and I think I'm going to get a 13% return, okay, well, now I'm going to get you know a 10.5% return. Um, that sort of way of doing it might work. Uh, then the other thing is obviously if the company's results slow down, do they have to issue more? Do they have to change how they compensate people? You know, all of that. Um, and that is an issue for like growth companies and stuff. It's obviously not an issue for these kinds of companies. But what's a big problem over time is that the stock option thing has become very pervasive so that even at smaller companies, family control companies, whatever, it's become common to have some stock um, issued to other people. And even if it's not much of a growth company or anything like that. So it's not just for companies that weren't making a lot of money, didn't have a lot of cash to pay, are in Silicon Valley, whatever, where they need to incentivize certain people. They don't want to give them, um, actual ownership in the founding, but they want them to think like a founder and to, to bring them on in a way to draw them away from high positions, other companies, whatever. Um, that was one thing, and that either makes sense or doesn't, but it's more of a venture-type thing. Um, it's moved so that it's common that we see it now at all companies, basically. There's some, it's often significant, often about 1% of the company, dilution um, happening at companies that are old companies that are in um, industries where this isn't necessary and are giving it to top uh, executives, including executives sometimes who own stock and um, already, you know, or are connected in some way to family or whatever, um, it's probably not necessary to do it. And obviously it's a bigger problem if the stock is undervalued and if you want to buy into it, and it can be a real drag. There can be a significant difference with a company that never issues stock versus one that does. So it's something to keep in mind. Totally. Mm-hmm. And if you were running a company, I mean, you would just set up a bonus pool of some sort, correct? Typically the way you would think about it. Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know what I would do if I was starting a company that was, you know, a tech startup or something, because there's not a lot that you can do mm-hmm. that way. But, you know, Berkshire Hathaway doesn't issue stock options, obviously. So, you know, and, and yet they compensate some people very highly. So it's possible to have very mm-hmm. high compensation without um, issuing shares to people. Mm-hmm. And the uh, stock-based comp scheme that I spoke about a few minutes ago as well, I mean, oftentimes these companies will actually buy back the stock from the people that they're actually issuing it to as well, which really sometimes you see individuals quote, well, the company's buying back a lot of stock, but then when you kind of do the math on it, 
it's not actually uh um you know the share count isn't actually going down because they're just buying back shares that they were issuing which is why jeff had said it's good to track the dilution over time and because this always gets brought up as well jeff when you're projecting what a company could be worth you know five years ten years whatever you are carrying out that dilution going forward if the company has done it you know for the past 10 years and mm -hmm. you know uh, you expect it to continue to happen you will also adjust for that going forward when you're thinking about like the valuation of what the business is worth correct yeah that's correct um there's a company that i probably would have bought if it wasn't for how much dilution there was um so it does i mean there's been a case where that it's been enough um where the return seemed comfortably 10 percent type return and then i think that's a tesla get six or seven percent no it's not tesla um but so it's <laughs> okay. a sign it's a completely science-based company um that okay. is behind people with advanced degrees and stuff and is giving them a lot of stock and has since the beginning of the company um but as a result it it's only a so-so investment for um outside shareholders but it's a pretty mm -hmm. good deal for the people who managed to get um hired by the company so because it's a good company but they also get the stock at you know without having to buy it in the market uh so i thought this article was interesting um, one of the parts that was, they were talking about before the, uh, I'm not going to say the C word because then you get like, you know, you get, uh, flagged on Spotify and YouTube. I'm not going to say it, but before, you know, the event that happened that started with a C, uh, Dillard's suffered from the same habit of overbuying and discounting that plagued other retailers that people said, uh, it thinned out its inventory during the pandemic and stayed lean as other chains overbought last year and wound up with too much stuff. He's spoken a lot about that last summer. One way Dillard's avoided that fate was by preaching the value of light inventories to its merchandise buyers. Its vice president of accounting recently met with buyers throughout the country to explain how excess goods hurt the bottom line. Company spokeswoman Julie uh, Guyman said, the company's inventories is down 23.5% in the fiscal year that ended Jan 28th compared with 2019 meanwhile profits totaled 891.6 million in the latest fiscal year up more than 700 percent compared with the same period in 2019 far outpacing rivals um so i thought that was interesting that i mean the whole like 700 percent increase in stuff whatever but just the fact that they're being more conscious of their cash flow and uh are uh purchasing you know inventories consciously to not overbuy and then have to actually discount and uh, do what target and walmart and a bunch of other retailers had to do uh last summer yeah we've talked about this before dillard sells a lot of clothing things like that um at the original markups on them those have good gross margins but because they are so highly perishable their fashion risk and, and seasonal risk and things like that you end up selling them at much lower levels because you have a bunch of it sell out on clearance and stuff like that which leads you to have low gross margins so that's the problem that you have you have high obsolescence for that so if you didn't have that problem which like that's the idea of the fast fashion companies and stuff is to try to avoid that problem then you'd be able to um have similar original pricing but it wouldn't look like you're more expensive but actually be making more profit over time because you're selling more of it as you originally intended instead of selling it um to clear it out because when you know walmart or target or any of those say that we're going to clear out inventory the way that they're doing that is they're putting things on clearance they're doing different stuff to drive that to happen so bad pricing mm -hmm. for that
And then they also said that their the store hours uh, have been reduced as well, which we talked a lot about that too, right? Um, do you think eventually things will go back to being open longer, kind of how they were pre-COVID as soon as competitors do that? Or do you think that's here to stay? No, I think that's uh, significantly here to stay because a lot of it makes a lot more sense. I mean, it depends on what the unemployment situation is. If eventually unemployment can be a lot higher, then it's a different story. But um, I think it's interesting companies like Dillard's and um, some other ones will realize that they don't need to be open that much, obviously. Um, they also can sell both online and offline and to be able to be more effective doing that than companies that sell just online or just offline, which means that you could reduce your hours. You could reduce some locations to be further away and kind of think about how you're going to do that. So I think some things like department stores and movie theaters, which we talked about, uh, car dealers, I think too, that are large groups, at least of car dealers can think seriously about, do we, can we reduce our footprint by a lot? Can we operate with three quarters of the number of locations or something? If we, um, have people come further to it? Can we operate with fewer hours and can we operate with part of the process online and part of the process offline? Uh, and, um, I think, yeah, I think that will be something that does permanently change from, uh, from what we had before. Um, some of the others, I don't know if obviously if they really want higher sales and eventually it's easier to hire people, then they could expand their hours. But a lot of things, you know, it didn't make a ton of sense for them to do the hours that they did. And, you know, um, historically there used to be a lot shorter hours in a lot of these stores. Um, the tradition for a lot of these was for much, much shorter hours. And then they copied more of the Walmarts and the targets, things like that. And what we're talking about now is just going to, I mean, we're talking about basically these companies operating like department stores had, um, instead of seeing themselves as just competing with these things, which are, you know, Walmart is a completely different business than a department store. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So somebody actually shot me a text. I'm not going to name any names, but somebody that, you know, knows Ted or talks to Ted or knows somebody that knows Ted or talked to Ted. So maybe a little bit, uh, you know, telephone game here, but the text said, just listen to your chat on DDS. I have a friend who talked to Ted, blah, blah, blah. He said he got the DDS idea while reading through BJ wholesale conference call transcripts and noticed they were selling some real estate or doing some kind of leaseback transaction or something similar. But the funniest thing about the conversation he had is he told Warren he wanted to buy Dillard's and he said, Warren thought I was crazy. Laughing oh. face. So Yeah. Well, Warren obviously, thought he was crazy. <laughs> they had, uh, so that's one thing we didn't talk about too. It is possible that, uh, we don't know, but it's possible that Ted has invested more in retail, depending on how you cut up the, um, who owns what, right? Because for instance, Berkshire Hathaway mm -hmm. has a holding in RH, Restoration Hardware. We could guess who that is. Mm -hmm. I, it's not Buffett. Um, and uh, they obviously, you know, we you heard the interview where he did with the uh, with Nebraska Furniture Mart, right? So there could be some mm -hmm. awareness of things that are different from like Buffett and Munger. One thing I talked about with Munger and Alibaba is that Buffett and Munger's record in retail is not very good. Their record in more general retail department stores, things like that, is, is bad. And um, that that's obviously a, a you know part of what you're talking about there. So um, I think mm -hmm. they the a big big part of that is 
Um, I mean, it's not, I, I guess you could say it's not an easy business or something, but of course, Buffett hasn't had as much problems investing in financial things where the operator made a lot of difference. The The thing with the retail stuff is that it makes a huge difference who's running the business, right? So, um, which you can get if you read like, um, what's the uh, Sam Walton biography? Um, made in America? Made in America, yeah. So, um, you know, I think we've pointed out before, like, you know, Walmart hasn't been an amazing stock since uh, Sam Walton died. And uh, it's obviously run differently since then over time. Now, it was run somewhat differently throughout his life, too. But it, it just it would have probably done different things if he had if he had lived for a long time um, or if someone else like him was running it. And I, I definitely mentioned associate um, contracts uh, with with Berkshire and how quickly it fell apart and stuff after they had someone else come in. But they've had that problem in insurance things, too. So, uh, you know, Buffett's been able to judge people well enough in insurance things and stuff where they've occasionally had to replace someone because things rapidly deteriorate after they lost a founder or something. But in retail, um, it hasn't worked out as well. Interesting. Well, I had a lot of fun talking about that investment. So we could talk about the current market and where we currently are on the year, the SP 500 up 3.8%, uh, 10 year yield. Uh, it was up above 4%, but we're currently at 3.94%. Crude oil, 77 bucks. And natural gas, Jeff, yes. 2.62. Yeah, I the thought you were Brains were blown gas. out. I mean, I think natural what, in the summer, the... in the summertime. <laughs> I know, it's like what CNBC does, right? Like when Bitcoin was higher, that's right. like on their, mm -hmm. their, their watch list stuff. And as soon as it's not, well, you just take it out. But no, we're, we're going to stay consistent here. Uh, I mean, we were talking $7 like last summer. Yep. And mm -hmm. here we are, a uh, warmer winter, inventory's up a little bit, and you could see just the swings in natural gas. I mean, I actually was curious and looked a few weeks ago at just the average swings that natural gas has from year to year. And it's like up 50, down 50, up 60, down 60, mm -hmm. up, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the most volatile asset ever. And of course, the leverage that you get with it as well. Um, but pretty crazy, right? I mean, $2.62. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, last time we actually went over this current market thing, we were at, you know, above six or around $7. With not a huge difference in oil, right? So, I mean, that's the other uh -huh. thing is that yeah. you'd think, oh, natural gas and oil, what is it? You know, you're buying some oil um, company and, you know, it's got natural gas and oil. Oh, well, you know, what does it matter which form it comes in and stuff? Um, so you've had, you know, uh, I don't know. 20% or something move in, in crude oil when you've had almost an 80% move or something in, in natural gas at times. Um, yeah, uh, I guess the two year has moved more than 10. So, you know, that's the more significant mm -hmm. development lately in the market is a shorter uh, term interest rates have increased, uh, yields and stuff have increased quite a bit more. Um, and there's been adjustment mm -hmm. in people's assessment of the, right, there you go, you got your terminal rate and all of that, so... Yep. That's right. Pulled from the daily shot. <laughs> uh, the two-year treasury yield rose above 5%, pushing the treasury curve uh, uh, into deeper inversion territory, uh, which I moved deeper into inversion territory. Anyways, but yeah, uh, two-year has risen uh, pretty drastically 
and we could go over that really quickly because we haven't talked about rates in some episodes. Uh, Chair Powell, he struck a hawkish tone uh, in front of Congress and basically talking about faster rate hikes. He said if the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Him and Elizabeth Warren were going at it. Uh, basically, she was saying, well, if you do this, two million jobs are going to or two million people are going to be laid off. What would you say to those two million people? And he said something like along the lines of, well, if we don't do our job, then everybody is going to continue to experience five to six percent inflation. Um, higher terminal rate, Powell, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. Uh, and then the probability of a 50 basis point hike this month has basically been locked in. It has surged. Um, it's pretty crazy, right? Like you read about from the 70s time frame just how hard it is to get inflation down and how entrenched it can become. And we're living through it right now. Um, I mean, do you have any general thoughts on inflation data, interest rates, where we currently are uh, in the curve and just, you know, thoughts on that in general? Uh, not really. I mean, I, we've talked about this before. I'm biased towards I've expected higher rates more than the um, market has consistently. So I think that my expectations would be out of the range of what people would normally be expecting. So, I, you know, um, I don't think that I can be very objective about all of that. Um, they're getting to levels that are not, you know, in terms of what the implied terminal rate is and stuff. That aren't that far from what we talked about early on. Um, you're talking about five and a half percent or something. We talked about six percent or something. Um, the the main thing is, it's it kind of there's there's a bunch of articles written about like oh well what if inflation is this high this isn't you know can we adjust the inflation targeting can we do this or that what if we measure inflation differently what if all these things about inflation it actually doesn't matter right now because if the Fed didn't know what inflation was they would still know what the unemployment rate was. And they would know that they need to raise mm -hmm. rates quite a bit because the suggested, like when we did things where I said, well, the rule of thumb would say you need to be, various rules of thumb would say you need to be between 6 and 10% early on. A large part of that is because of things like the unemployment rate. You can do things where you say, okay, I don't know what inflation is, but what do I need to do trying to come up with other sorts of numbers? And you, I think the Fed would say that the unemployment rate needs to settle at the boom part of a cycle, you know, at almost one point higher than where it is now. And that probably you need to raise unemployment by one to one and a half percent or something from where you are now. Now, people could rejoin the workforce and whatever. The unemployment rate is not maybe the best measure of the labor force, um, you know, how it's being utilized and stuff. But if that's what we're going on, then it needs to be quite a bit higher. To be that much higher, you can say, well, how much higher how much do you normally need to increase interest rates to cause an additional increase of one or one and a half percent unemployment or something that's quite a bit higher than where we are now. Now you could say, okay, well, there's a lag. Maybe that's the reason. And then you go back and say, okay, how big is the lag? How far back do we go that hasn't trickled through to um, the unemployment rate? But regardless, you kind of end up with numbers that you have to raise the unemployment rate. Um, because if you don't raise the unemployment rate, it's unclear how you would be able to have the economy grow as you want it to without causing inflation right um mm -hmm. so this is kind of what we talked about in the past um 
I've even heard people talk about like the, you know, no landing scenario, right? But that's kind of the the illogic of it, which is, okay, what if we don't have a recession and inflation comes down? Well, it's unclear how that would work because you don't have slack in terms of labor. So how would you be growing uh, without causing inflation? That That's the problem. Uh, if in, Unless something is very different where they are able to have major changes, which the we talked about before, the Fed has assumed for a while that um, that uh, you know the, that it wasn't a problem running with a very low unemployment rate, and that really started mm-hmm. around 2017 or so, where they had a the unemployment rate was too low relative to interest rates, or interest rates were kept too low relative to the unemployment rate. At that time, there wasn't a lot of inflation. So if you're using inflation targeting stuff, you'd say, okay, this is fine. But the um, but it was an inappropriate rate for the level of unemployment. And in the longer run, maybe it makes more sense to think about the interest rate and the unemployment rate and things like that instead of looking at the rate of inflation currently. Um, you know, historically, interest rate targeting isn't, uh, I mean, uh, inflation targeting isn't really uh, been what they've done, what central banks have done all the time. You know, the I think the first times that one that banks start doing that is in the '90s, and it's not the uh, Federal Reserve for a long time more. So, it's something that you could, you know, move away from and start talking about other things. And probably it would be a lot better if they weren't talking all the time about what inflation is and just saying, "Look, there's too much." I mean, I wrote down the number that you said. If 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 Senator Warren said two million people, that's probably not wrong. You probably do need to throw two million mm-hmm. people out of work to be able to slow inflation. I mean, that number sounds about right when I divide it into the workforce and everything, that you're overemployed by too many people have jobs who you shouldn't have jobs right now. Um, and if you don't uh, do something about that, then you won't be able to grow the economy without um, having inflation. Do you think this just shows how important it is for the Fed to be independent of other parts of government? Because here we are, I mean, inflation is already... I mean, it's it's a huge issue, and there's extreme backlash towards the Fed because it's, people are going to get laid off and they're going to price us into a recession, right, to slow things down. I mean, my biggest takeaway was just how important it is uh, for the Fed to remain independent because politicians, you know, they they would be like just continuing to to run the gun because they don't want people to be laid off and yeah, push us I into mean, a recession. I think the press overstates the kind of idea that um, they did this during the Trump years. You know, oh, this is unprecedented that a president has been saying this and stuff. It's not unprecedented. The only presidents who respected the independence of the Fed were Clinton, um, George W. Bush, the the second, um, and uh, Obama. Those were the only ones. No other presidents stayed out of it. Um, They all interfered a lot some much worse than president's modern ones. Um, I think... Uh, it was Truman funny on was David Rubenstein yeah. when he had said that Trump... When he said that Trump would call uh, Jay Powell often or he would talk to him often. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the, the most famous one is with Johnson. So Johnson just... So Johnson met with a with a head of the Fed and then uh, lied about what was said in the meeting. Came out first and said, you know, the put out press thing first and said what had been discussed, which was not what had been discussed, what had been agreed, which wasn't what had been agreed. And so you're stuck with it, right? So that, in fact, is why when Powell met with Trump, 
they had to say what they were talking about agree mm-hmm. on the statement before they agree to the meeting which is what they do in like diplomatic meetings and stuff you agree to the statement you'll put out to the press before you actually have your meeting so you know when they have the mm-hmm. president of uh, the united states and the prime minister of whatever country there and they meet it's actually been decided beforehand by aides and stuff um what the exact statement will be put out and then they're allowed to have their meeting so you know um same sort of thing yeah i mean obviously politicians are for um uh, not all politicians, but some politicians are going to be for looser policy. Um, the other issue you have is that you don't have a very long period um, worldwide uh, in the United States and in other countries uh, where you are completely untethered to any sort of rules that you have with currencies and things like that. So we really only have since the beginning of the 70s to today to judge what can happen with central banks and how much inflation you can have. And we've had now two bad episodes. That's not a very long period of time to have two episodes in half a century. Um, So unless this gets underhand fast, um, it does become really worrying that the whole central banking thing, when it's not connected to any sort of gold standard, any sort of standard in which there is a relationship between other currencies, as you had it with other currencies in the U.S. dollar, and then theoretical, the possibility that the U.S. dollar could be converted to gold from from large holders, from other central banks. Um, if there's nothing there, which has only existed for about 50 years, then it seems like there's a lot of trouble that governments have. Um, and the United States has basically run a deficit fiscal all the time since then. So it, it had one brief period around 2000 where that wasn't true. But prior to that, it sometimes ran surpluses. Uh, and on a net basis, often it didn't have one or the other. Um, a few years earlier, it started running them. But so if you think about it in the last 50 years, you may have had too loose um, policy from the central banks. And you certainly have had a willingness to run deficits. Um, and then it's, it may be even worse in some cases in like Europe and stuff where you have um, countries that are both are running deficits uh, for, for a while that have run deficits while also probably not meeting obligations for like defense spending. So that, you know, with Ukraine, this is an issue. Um, they're, they're likely going to meet their NATO targets at some point, which requires them to spend a certain amount of GDP. If they've been running a deficit when they weren't even doing that, then basically that's telling you that everyone's kind of structurally thinks that normal is running a significant deficit. Um, and a deficit on its own isn't that big a deal, but if the expectation is that you'll always run a deficit in, um, Mm -hmm. normal times, so not that you'll run a deficit after a a bust, after a financial crisis, when you have a lot of unemployment, when you're fighting a war, but that you'll run it pretty regularly, then expectations would change a lot in terms of what inflation would be. And so eventually there could be high expectations. You could be shifting to a situation where there's high expectations of inflation ongoing forever. You know, um, that wouldn't be unbelievable um and we've talked about why that is before but basically with like the united states for instance a lot of the measures of inflation are incorporating things from other countries so durable goods things that happen to come from china um where they had a very different situation uh too much in terms of like too much manufacturing capacity and stuff um so that was deflationary and that is sort of imported 
if we look at things like the sticky inflation stuff, the service things, the locally produced things, we don't see the same. We never saw the same level of like almost 0% inflation. We saw like 2%, 2 to 3% inflation throughout the 2010s, which supposedly was a period in which inflation was too low. Um, and that was coming out of a huge financial crisis where you'd normally have deflation. So, that, you know, I don't know, except that at some point, the reason why they're worried about this and stuff is at some point there's major implications for this if everyone realizes um, that, oh, like what you're talking about, it. the issue is, it's not just like, say, political pressure. Um, it's, to some extent, I mean, even the people who don't have political, who aren't applying political pressure and saying to the Fed, oh, go ahead, raise it, that's great, whatever, are basically saying, well, that does our job for us. We don't have to not run deficit because you'll have higher rates. And the Fed always says that theoretically they control inflation, you know, that they can, can set uh, they, they can set an interest rate to achieve any level of inflation that they want, which is kind of true, but obviously it depends on the what the fiscal policy is. And so it just means that it's a theoretical possibility that you could, that to however big the deficit and stuff, you could raise interest rates to offset that. Um, I, I don't, I mean, the two are related. So uh, I think that the long-term expectations of the two are related. And over time, there might be a shift in what those expectations are because they're very mild right now. So if you look, like when we look at things like tenure and stuff, like tenure's too low. The yield on the tenure looks uh-huh. inappropriately low. So like um, historically, it wouldn't be odd to see a country's tenure yield and its nominal GDP growth rate be about the same, uh, the expectations for the two. So if you think that, the country is going to grow GDP by like 10% a year nominal inflation plus it's real GDP growth. Then it would make sense that it's be 4% or something. But so that's baking in on the 10 year, almost no inflation or almost no growth. Um, one or the other, you know, that a very low combination, it could be 2% inflation and 2% growth or something. And then it's, it's not way off, but it's certainly assuming that kind of thing that it gets back to a fairly low level, fairly fast, which might not be wrong. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it just means that certainly there hasn't been a big shift in people's longer term expectations. We've seen the big shift in the short term realization of inflation that's going on now, but people have reacted fairly eh, like it's a temporary thing, which it very well may be. So if inflation just rolls off and there's this soft landing, do you think the Fed would cut interest rates again to stimulate growth? Or do you think those interest rates that we saw over the past couple of years were just a complete aberration that we won't see again until there's another panic. Uh, both. So I think that they are and that they wouldn't do that again. However, we're kind of in uncharted territory. The Fed has never, that I can think of, seen an inversion like this and not cut. I can't think of one. But mm-hmm. Some listeners might be able to think of one where we've been inverted by like a full point like this for this long and not cut. The The Fed cuts every time they invert the curve meaningfully. Um, so... There hasn't been a recession yet that anyone's announced. So, uh, but certainly, yeah, every time there's a recession, they cut every, and every time there's a yield curve inversion like this, there's a recession. So, um, it, it's never happened that, that we've had a recession and they just haven't cut in modern times like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never ha- happened that we've had a yield curve inversion like this and they haven't cut. So, we're in uncharted territory in a few different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, they always cut. That That's always been what happened. As soon as, un- <laughs> basically, I mean, there have been occasional situations where unemployment has moved up slightly that I can think of. A recession has not resulted 
these are very, very small increases on unemployment. And the Fed has not um, cut. Uh, I don't know what cases that is other than Greenspan, but there might be some. Um, and so it is possible. But, you know, I, I think that the it's almost certain that they will cut rates. And that's probably why the rates that you saw expected such a quick stop from the Fed is if they're predicting recession, then they expect them to start cutting immediately because mm-hmm. that's what they've always done mm-hmm. in the past. Um, so, I mean, if you think rates are here for longer, higher rates are here for longer, do you think bank stocks are, are looking cheap or what are your thoughts well, on financials in general? <laughs> I mean, if you look at like JP Morgan, 1.4 times book, you look at Bank of America, I think we're at like what, one times book. Um, you could go down the line. Are we back to looking cheap again for banks? Kind of back to circa 2020 timeframe when banks looked uh, cheap. I mean, Wells Fargo, 0.9 times book value. Mm-hmm. You can just go down the line and we're kind of starting to tick down again. So this is the area in which we're in the biggest... Um uncharted territory which we mentioned before so i'm gonna you know bring up something that i bring up on this podcast sometimes which now is never mentioned by the fed they never mentioned the statistic but um they it used to be the main statistic they talked about like 40 years ago last time there was bad inflation um money supply so money supply by most measures that that we would use um has declined in the last year by basically all measures that you use and um, has declined a bit more rapidly in the last few months than it did in like the early part of a year, uh, which is almost unprecedented. It has happened before briefly. Um, but it's certainly interesting, for instance, that, you know, so for instance, there's comparisons between the United States and China. Like, why is the United States growing this way? Why is China growing this way? Something to keep in mind is that if you think about the money supply growth and everything, it's not clear that China's economy is currently... Um, the potential growth and all that is a lot greater than the United States. Um, under the same monetary conditions, the United States might be growing faster than China right now. China is growing at a very modest rate. Now we'll see when they open up and everything, if it becomes much more rapid, very, very modest rate relative to a high level of money supply growth. The United States should not be growing at all. <laughs> and so that's mm-hmm, part of the mm-hmm. worrying thing here um, of why is it growing? Why is there any growth? When you, How is it happening that you're having growth when you have money supply contraction like this? And how quickly could it reverse? Um, one possibility is that you could have too much of a reversal pretty easily. Uh, because, so like, the economy is not in recession as far as we know in the last quarter. Um, despite the fact that you've had trends in homes that are pretty unusual outside of a recession for a year now. Um, So there are things like that that could reverse quickly. And that's why you would be careful about cutting too much that about why you could start a lot of inflation and stuff is that you could have a disproportionate effect on those sorts of things and not a very large effect on others. Um, So the issue for the banks so I think it depends on what kind of bank. I think there there's much greater danger of lending long-term and having trouble getting deposits than people realize. And I think watching deposit trends and stuff is meaningful. And so banks that have a lot of low-cost deposits that are very sticky that they're likely to be able to hold on to and stuff, companies like Bank of America, um, 
would be in a better position and companies that have a lot of short-term investments, money left at the Fed, um, loans that come back to you quicker in terms of payments um, and less tied to long-term things and real estate and all of that are probably in a better situation. Banks that don't have a lot of deposits um, that are that reliable, that that's not where their real franchise is, and that are lending a lot to like longer term real estate things and stuff like that. Um, I think, uh, it could be a problem and eventually we could see some problems for, for banks from this, which we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, we haven't seen, um, mismatches between funding and between, um, assets and liability stuff cause a lot of cause any meaningful bank failures in many, many decades. I, I mean, I mean, you can almost count which ones have happened of purely for that reason. And it's a small, tiny, meaningless fraction. Um, and that would be more the issue here than something like, uh, than something like, um, delinquencies and stuff. Um, there is some stuff that is also worrying in terms of how expensive things have gotten. So you could see unusual trends there. So I think, uh, like we talked about Ally Financial, right? So they're involved in like auto lending. I, you have very high delinquencies in auto lending for a period in which everyone's employed. Um, and it also, it's interesting what the severity of those losses will be too for, for them, for CarMart, for any of those, because of how expensive it's been uh, gotten. Um, I think you could, so cars are the big one there. I don't know that much about housing, because in the United States, there's just so much, there's so little debt in that area, and so little of it reprices, um, that I don't know that it's a huge problem. And I don't know how big an effect that has, because most people, you know, there's been so few homes being sold, really. It's not like, I mean, we've seen a boom in terms of home prices, but we haven't seen a boom in terms of um, the number of people getting into new mortgage stuff like that. It's, it's really other countries that are the bigger risk there. But home prices are obviously very elevated versus per people's earnings and stuff. Um, and so we'll see about that. But, uh, you know, like I was looking at um, Greenberg Partners, right? And I think they said their median home sold in the quarter was $580,000. Um, <laughs> that's not sustainable. You know, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So who knows, but that that's difficult if that's what, you know, um, because eventually people will have to have different interest rates on that. Um, you know, the, if those are their new homes being sold then they do have different interest rates on that and, uh, that would make it very expensive in some places. And that's why you have, you know, these articles about people making over a hundred thousand dollars and living paycheck to paycheck is because they're taking out a mortgage on a $580,000 home. So there's not much left over in disposable income. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, there's, there's a lot of inflation, like asset inflation stuff that might be worrying, I think more in car than home probably. So that doesn't affect that many banks. Like that's not a huge lending section. It's not something that you'd worry a lot about, but for those that it does, like we talk about America's car Mart, which is not a bank, but is exposed to that. And there are other ones that do that. Um, I think it's worrying, but we've talked about that trend for a long time that it's worrying. It's gotten very mm -hmm. expensive. Um, and then that's also a risk for other kinds of car companies, right? So, um, that's a risk for, for your Teslas and things like that, because, the, um, 
Tesla may be a great value versus other cars, um, generally for all the things that you want. What it's not a great value for though, is, um, basic transportation, which kind of puts a, um, floor underneath the need for buying in the United States. You know, there's not a lot of public transportation. People don't live around there. They need to get to work things, whatever. So there's all the kinds of cars that CarMart sells in rural areas. There's always demand for, but the gap has gotten pretty big Mm -hmm. between a nine year old used car, um, and some new cars. And, and I mentioned Tesla just because obviously Tesla is because of the fact it's electric and stuff just doesn't work well as a choice for that. Um, it would be something that you'd obviously avoid and stuff. So, um, I think that is a potential problem there. Um, and we'll see how it goes. And then of course, for things like America's car Mart, they also need funding because they don't have deposits, you know, and, mm-hmm. and ally over time, um, that's shifted, but we've talked about that before too. So, um, their costs used to be very low barring at corporate level and doing that. So their business used to be a lot better that way. On the other hand, it may cut down in competition in the long run for them. So we'll see, but yeah, they're definitely will be stressed by this. What about just more traditional banking models then that, like I said, don't have exposure to car lending as much. So your bank of America's your, I mean, JP Morgan does a bunch of different things, but just the typical larger bank. I think you have to look at them and decide. I think things that have very strong, deposits are desirable. Um, so it's back to that. The stronger the deposits and the shorter they lend is the better. So, you know, um, mm-hmm. so like we talked about frost, frost expectations for the year are based on what the, their earnings expectations for the year were based on fed funds rates being at a certain level, which was the previous expectations. So if they were to run ahead of that, then their, their earnings would be even higher and they might earn more than $11 a share or whatever. Um, so that would make them not that expensive. But the expectation, obviously, is it would come down fast mm-hmm. um, from there. So, but those kinds of banks are a good example because generally, if you raise rates a bit, you can um, retain a lot of deposits, right? And you can retain a lot of deposits in the bank mm-hmm. um, with that. Um, there are other ones which I don't that are harder to predict. Like I think we talked, Berkshire's big ones are Bank of America and American Express. I would have to look much more closely at American Express to see, but. Obviously, they're not lending long term. Um, so, mm-hmm. so a business that generates float becomes a lot more attractive. We haven't talked about that, but um, so there's offsets with that. I think we talked about um, like title insurance has been badly affected. Interest for rates on the effect of, of float. Yeah. So, so something like investors' title or something has had a huge drop in terms of their um, title insurance underwriting business, but. They hold money at all times, um, small amounts, which used to be earning about 0%, and now will earn much higher, so the, sh- the mix has shifted. So while the results are much worse, um, the mix will also shift so that more comes in in a financial form, and that will be true for lots of things. Um, so anything that generates float will have a benefit from this that's meaningful, that's very meaningful, um, because... People were ignoring it when it was earning 1%, but if it earns 5%, then, you know, it's five times more, it, it will start to be very significant. Um, we did that even where I talked about Berkshire last week, um, basically saying, look, you know, just people ignore the float. Um, even if they're not buying stocks with the float, it's significant because at this point you're going to get 5% or something, even if you're not taking any risk 
in terms of how far out um, you're buying bonds and things. So just having cash at this point is, you know, um, we'll see, but we don't know that having cash from having float, which is not money that you yourself have. Um, so customer money and earning a percentage on that may be better than say borrowing and owning um, the S&P. You know, so it's a low risk thing and yet it might have returns like that so far, you know, we'll see, but it, the S&P would have to do 5% for the year or whatever to, to match the short term rates right now. And, um, and float is other people's money. It's not your own money. So, you know, it's a lot more attractive in terms of earnings from that. So there's different businesses that have that. And, uh, I'd have to look at American express, but you know, different companies have some float and usually it's ignored progressive historically was ignored because they didn't buy longer term things. Um, so we mentioned a company, Global Indemnity. They had a really weird one where they, uh, so they're an insurance company. They sold off some insurance business and um, they sold basically all of their longer term assets and went to cash um, at the maybe end of, not even quite the end of last year, uh, but a while ago. And um, so their results will look a lot better than other insurance companies because other insurance companies will get hit a lot from that. So, th but that was pure market timing type thing that they decided to do and, um, unusual. So if you're looking at this company, I mean, where would you even start if it was like, Oh, we just pull it up on quick FS. I mean, maybe take us through a walkthrough. People ask about insurance all the time on the podcast. And if you think float is, I mean, we know float is more beneficial when rates are higher. I mean, what would you be looking for with a fresh set of eyes? Well, I'm not sure what you could tell from QuickFS. Um, I think we talked about this. This says on uh, PLC, uh, right? I'm reading that right on um, QuickFS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, it's actually an LLC. Yeah. 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 So it's actually an LLC. It's an offshore company. So that's a problem for everybody that they're usually not going to invest in a publicly traded LLC. Um, the, the thing with this one is I believe the controlling shareholders like obsessed with taxes and stuff. He's quite an unusual person, I think. I think his background's in tax stuff. And that's the reason why it was um, offshore and everything and why I think some things were done that way. Um, but I think they're changing a bunch of things. Uh, the only thing that interested me about that company is reading the actual filings. So they fired the main people who are running things and stuff and replaced them with other people. So they've changed a lot and it's not very consistent that way. But just looking at reserves development over time and changes in the what businesses they sold off and what ones they kept um, made it more interesting. So, um, but it was purely from that perspective, not from the perspective of, um, of anything else. So what businesses they were exiting and then, um, so they exit this business. Usually what they're doing is they're getting rid of their liabilities by giving them to someone else in exchange for basically getting very little or nothing for the business but they're able to remove all of that for a business that has a combined ratio. That's, you know, a hundred or more a lot of the time. And, um, then keeping a business that looks different from that. And, uh, what they've slimmed down to on the stuff that they're underwriting is a little more predictable, easier to figure out what it might be worth. And then their assets are much better, um, positioned compared to other insurance companies. And then the stock is below book where some insurance companies are above book. So, um, yeah. So just like reading the filings and stuff, it looked interesting. But like I said, it's a very unusual behavior, and I think it's because of the controlling shareholder. Cool. All right. Well, we can move on. Did you see this Form 4 come out? Uh, Buffett, he bought another 5.8 million shares of Occidental between last Friday and Tuesday. 
He now owns just over 200 million shares or about 22% of the shares outstanding. Do you know what prices it was done at? Yeah, maybe between $59.84 and yeah. $61.56. Okay. Yeah, so I he continues buy to buy. It. Yeah. I think he'll buy it like less than 65 or something. 55, 65. Like he just been buying all the time when it's there. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen what the stock was recently, but I know that not that long ago when he wasn't buying, it was above the prices that he had been buying before. Um, Do you think this is a signal to perhaps go and look at other similar companies that are more off the beaten path, perhaps smaller that Buffett would not I be wish. able to invest in, but could you look <laughs> at this as like a good signal to go find some other companies? I wish I don't know how to find them. I've looked at things. They don't generally look that good. I'm surprised by how mm -hmm. expensive some of them are. They're, yeah, I passed on something that would have been very good that we, you know, maybe should have done or whatever, but that was a while ago. Um, so, what yeah. What was that company? It was an oil company in the US. Um, but we're talking a little while ago, but, uh, but it's not cheap now compared to these other ones that we're talking about. You know, that's part of the problem. Um, so there's not a lot of small oil companies that are all that attractive. Um, I've looked and tried to find some, um, there's some that people talk to me about and stuff they have some hopes for, but it's more, I mean, the, the, um, the ones that I, you know, that are very small are a little more marginal in terms of their, um, whether they'll actually get um, royalties from it and stuff. They own a bunch of stuff. And uh, without a high oil price, I don't know how much will actually be produced and how much they would make off of it. Um, so, but then there's probably not a huge downside risk because they're selling for not that much different than like what they're worth otherwise. Um, so, yeah. Um, I did look at, yeah. yeah. I looked at one other thing that was interesting. Um, very small, very hard to get. Um, yeah. So what's the, what's Occidental's market cap? 55.5 billion. Okay. So yeah, I looked at something that was like, um, let's see, one twenty thousandth the size, something like that. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and that was, that was very reasonably priced or something, but uh, very hard to get. So generally I found it like impossible. Like the, you know, people would like to hear, Oh, do you have a 300 million to $3 billion type, you know, stock? So I think with some liquidity, but yeah. overlooked and stuff. And I don't, I don't, um, like I said, I passed on one thing in that category that was, that shouldn't have, you know, but we don't really do energy companies and stuff. And, uh, I mean, Buffett did this before he's bought oil companies in the past. So he bought, you know, in the in the seventies, he sometimes bought things that were in other categories of inflation protection, and he even bought oil companies in the two thousands before the um, both in the oil run up. Then he bought PetroChina, obviously, and did well in that. But he also bought, I guess, ConocoPhillips. Then, so he's got two big ones now: Occidental and Chevron. Chevron actually is bigger in terms of Berkshire's weighting in it, right? But Chevron's such a bigger company; it's a smaller percentage of the stock they own. But between the two of them, it's a very big position. I mean, we could probably... Do you have like Data Roma or something for that? Because if we combine the two companies, we could get an idea of how much he's exposed to oil that way. Why did you pass on um, 
the uh, smaller company? Was that a style thing? Was it because there's a few things that you didn't like about it or what? No, that's the problem. Just because it was an oil company and they don't <laughs> buy oil companies and stuff. That's the <laughs> illogic of it. Okay, so how much Chevron do they have? Yeah. They own 162 million shares, 29.2 billion. Okay. And Occidental? 12.2 billion. Ish. I mean, this is not updated because this goes by the 13 uh, for whatever. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit more than that. And as of the last um, quarter, the last 13 F that they have there, what were the percentages of the portfolio in each of those? According to this, Occidental, 4%. Chevron, just under 10%. Yeah, so other than um, Apple and Bank of America, I'd say Bank of America also, there's, you know, uh, which we've said are are very big investments for them. Um, It's their sort of single biggest thing because the other ones don't fold together, the positions in them normally. So, you know, um, that's what Buffett is in. He's in the oil companies, like we said, U S oil companies. And, um, he's in bank of America as his bank. He's been eliminating the other banks and we know he's in Apple in a big way, but that's a huge portion of Berkshire's portfolio. If we just took those three together, uh, those four technically, because Chevron and Occidental are two different companies, but he's buying them like they're, you know, the same sort of thing or whatever. So, and you still think it's a bet on higher oil prices and at Occidental, yes. the change in capital allocation. Well, higher oil prices and the capital allocation, obviously. Um, but the capital allocation determines the... Uh, the de- capital allocation determines the oil price. I mean, from the industry as a whole. So the important thing is that the industry not overdo it in terms of capital allocation, which they've been they've been sufficiently um, careful about so far. Um, so... Yeah, I think that he he's he's always been betting on higher oil prices over time. Um, he's talked about that before, so you know. Um, and then the capital allocation is really an issue of if they if they do that or the you know as long as they don't do other things that aren't smart. Right now, it's in a sweet spot for capital allocation stuff because it's a sort of a declining industry. It's a no growth or declining industry, but it doesn't see itself most of them as being existentially threatened. So that it has to go and buy random things outside of it, which may happen at some point, but that hasn't happened yet. So they, you know, there's some companies that are in carbon capture and stuff, but they, they aren't just randomly like, you know, we have to buy solar and wind and, uh, you know, uh, buy an electric car company or something. Um, so because they're not doing that, they're in a really good spot in terms of capital allocation in the industry. Um, but it's hard to tell because in the 70s, um, it may have looked like oil prices would go up for a long time too, because at the time, you know, U.S. oil production and stuff was not going to grow. They knew that, and it didn't for a very long time. And then, you know, decades later, it was possible to grow and everything. So, the you know, um, what's the book I was thinking of? Uh, is it the Prize? There's a book that's about the oil industry, the history of the oil industry, and um. I think that people can read that one if they want for an idea of it. What's, um, yeah, the, the epic quest for oil, money, and power, the prize. Yeah. So there you go. 
So if you go to Amazon or anywhere and you buy the prize, that will be a good book to understand this because constantly the expectations for what it'll be a few decades out are way off, right? So they're always surprised by these things that happen. Um, and why is that? It's interesting. Well, one is it's a globally traded commodity. So that's a huge part of it. So um, that's a big part of it. Two is they're wrong about a lot of things. I mean, we adjust these things over time. So if you say well, people include in their write-ups of Value Investors Club or whatever, here's what the electric vehicles will be this year, this year, this year. Well, if you keep adjusting them and never go back and see what did people predict in the, you know, 10 years ago for something, then it doesn't look too bad. Um, so I think the the biggest issue is that it's very difficult. It's the same mistake the Fed made with um, with uh, interest rates and stuff. It's very easy to fool yourself when you're not quite at full unemployment, at full employment, that you won't have inflation if you get to full employment. That it's not having a big impact, right? It's the same sort of thing with oil. At times, they can they can think that that there's not enough oil because the situation is a little tight and the pricing isn't that great. But if the pricing goes stratospheric, then it'll unleash a lot of activity that people said they weren't going to engage in before. So, you know, we have $70 barrel oil or something now. Let's say 70, 80, something like that. If it goes to 200, then the predictions are out the window. Because whatever the companies are saying they're going to do, at 200, they'll behave differently. So uh, that's part of it. And... Um, and then at other times, it was just complete changes. Like the 70s is a good example. So before the 70s, no economy had grown. It basically, no economy had grown without increasing, uh, without uh, growing its need for energy at the same pace or more. No, no economy had ever become more efficient in terms of its energy use. In the 1970s, the U.S. does, and it never gets back below that level. So the U.S. basically, I mean, you can argue about this because a lot of things been offshored and stuff. So maybe what the U S consumes has a high energy content, but you know, in terms of its GDP per capita versus its um, energy use per capita, it, it you know, of uh, fossil fuels, it, it's been down for 50 years. It, it's flat and down. So the people are living a higher standard of living than they were 50 years ago. And they're consuming about the same amount in terms of like gasoline and stuff. Um, that was unimaginable. So, you know, economists and stuff in 1972 would have said that can never happen because it never had happened. Um, so that was the whole idea that you could conserve energy and increase. And the reason why is, is pricing. If you increase the price that people have to pay for it, then they'll figure out how to become more efficient with it. If, if that hadn't happened, people wouldn't have figured out how to become more efficient, right? If, if oil prices had come down instead of up, then people don't, um, have to figure out different ways to save a lot of money. So that that's what mostly drives it, is that if it's a very big expense and they realize it, then they have to deal with it. Then it changes all sorts of behavior across the whole economy because it's being rationed that way. So it's really hard to predict how people will behave by asking them ahead of time. You know, I always complain about those polls that say, will you drive less or something if oil is $6? Or, or, you know, like it comes up with these numbers. And people say yes or or whatever, but we don't know until we do it. Um, I'm sure people said I'll buy a lot less eggs or whatever, and then eggs double, and you know they say, "Well, I still need to eat eggs." Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it's very hard. It's very hard to know. Is the 
the answer with that kind of thing because like you don't see it predicted ahead of time um, in terms of like what people's behavior will be. It's very hard to know what will happen. Um, like how would we predict how many cars Tesla will sell or something? If you if Tesla was sell, priced every it made the same car at the same price for ten years, then we could predict better. But if it keeps getting cheaper, better, whatever, then it's harder to predict what that will be. Um, and then at some point that doesn't keep improving at the same rate that it did before. So again, becomes more difficult to predict. So, you know, they're basically extrapolations of recent trends is usually how they do these things, you know? And, uh, yeah. So, but you read that book every, you know, probably every 20 years or something, the, the world was wrong by a lot in terms of what it expected, um, oil supply to do. So, uh, we spoke in last year. A lot about the uh, JetBlue and Spirit Airlines uh, merger. Yeah. And I'm just curious, Jeff, if you think that there's some opportunity in the market for a merger arbitrage and if this would be a situation that you would be interested in. Uh, the Justice Department is suing yeah. to block JetBlue from buying Spirit Airlines. Uh, just as a refresher, the deal is for $3.8 billion or three or $33.50 per share. Uh, Spirit Airlines, I pulled the screenshot earlier today, is currently trading at $17.13. So there's just a huge gap uh, between the takeout price and where Spirit is currently trading. I pulled some uh, information just from reading about it. The U.S. Justice Department has filed a lawsuit seeking to block JetBlue's proposed $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit Airlines, arguing that the deal would hurt competition in the airline industry and lead to higher fares. Uh, let's see, JetBlue and Spirit plan to fight the lawsuit with JetBlue CEO saying that deal would ensure customers get a, a competitive airline marketplace. The Justice Department has been concerned that previous airline mergers have reduced competition in the industry and under the Biden administration, blah, 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 blah. Uh, JetBlue and Spirit overlap on as much as 11% of nonstop routes they both fly. And JetBlue has offered to seek the divestment of all of Spirit's holdings in Boston and New York as well as five airport gates at Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, the part that I thought was interesting, the deal aims to expand JetBlue's nationwide presence, and JetBlue has said that it intends to repaint the airline's bright yellow jets, so basically take out the bright yellow jets, the ugly jets, while tearing some seats out of Spirit's more crowded cabins, and the Justice Department is basically saying you're going to raise prices if you do that. Um, and they said that uh, JetBlue effectively has acknowledged it would raise prices by predicting that it would reap 24% more revenue per seat than Spirit earns today. So just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the difference between the $33.50 takeout price and where Spirit Airlines is currently trading. If you think there's an opportunity there, I believe we have spoken about you know, different situations where you had said you would be interested in a merger arbitrage situation if you would feel like, well, where it's currently trading, the market is actually cheap, where if a deal doesn't go through, mm -hmm. uh, you would still buy it today. Does this fall yeah, under that cheap. framework? Yeah. Okay, because mm -hmm. we spoke a lot about cheap, airlines, but... so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Spirit's cheap. It probably, I mean, if you valued it like a normal stock or something, it'd probably be worth $30 a share, probably, something like that. Um, the deals for around there, there's a little more complications than we mentioned here. Spirit had, there had been a payment before that happened with the deal. Um, and, and then they also have like a ticking clock that they have to keep. JetBlue is effectively like renting 
the spirit shares. So I think it's paying 10 cents a month or something. You have to, um, I'm sure people could look it up, but I, I forget what it is, but at the current price, it might be 8% yield or something um, that they are paying just to, if, if they still continues up to a certain point. And then there might be certain ways that they could get out of that or something, you know? Um, and obviously these companies can renegotiate things, but you're getting some uh, other stuff. Yeah, the stock would be trading higher, I think, if there wasn't a deal um, in place. Um, but it's not that far out of line with other airlines, which also are about this cheap, that they're worth probably about twice what they're trading for. Spirit is a lot more leveraged than something like Southwest. So if you kind of dig through the balance sheet and stuff with Southwest, you keep finding, oh, there's more assets than I thought and everything and less liabilities. Spirit, it's the opposite. Um, there's a bunch of liabilities and stuff. So it, it is more, um, yeah, it's, it's more leveraged to what it could get there. Um, if we just look at the history of the company, um, with quick FS, we can see that it did, um, let's see, uh, what was last year's revenue for them? Last year's revenue for spirit Spirit. was 5 billion. 5 billion the worst year i believe for operating income in spirits history that i know of is about eight percent on a three-year basis i don't think they've actually done worse than about 10 percent ebit so that would suggest that their earning power would be about 500 million dollars normally um you could say it's a little bit worse or something uh you know pre-tax and then um so after tax Let's, you know, we could round it down or something, but you're still, there's no, there's no way that after tax, you aren't getting numbers that are like 350 million or something, but that would be using the entire, um, that's without adjusting for the fact that they're paying on certain things, but of course, and they're not using shareholder money. So I'm, I'm trying to adjust it. So using like the operating income, a lot of people would just do that against the enterprise value. And so they'd say, oh, it's trading at less than 10 times or something. Um, 10 times is about, so like it's probably trading at seven times what you'd expect EBIT to be in the future. Um, that's, you know, if they kind of achieve that um, because they've never had particularly low operating margins that I can think of Spirit. Um, Spirit's a weird airline though, so I don't know if I like it as much. Um, that's the hard thing uh, as like a Southwest or something. It's not as plain vanilla and easy to predict. Most of its revenue comes from add-on fees. Um, its seat revenue for actually selling the fare is less than half of all of its revenue. Everything else is you want to bring a carry on, you want to have checked bags, whatever, and they add it on. Um, certainly, as the Justice Department said, uh, it's going to cost more to fly JetBlue. However, JetBlue is going to um, provide you with a better experience. So if the idea is just to have the lowest possible fares, then obviously everyone operating like Spirit or something would give you lower fares. I mean, um, if you compare fares on, you know, Southwest or something, you're obviously can bring carry on, um, and you can also bring checked bags, two checked bags and stuff. So uh, there's obviously a major difference, which when you add that in, that's half of spirits, uh, fare. Um, it's like, I mean, I, I looked it up. It's, mm, I think a, even a discount airline, you know, original discount airline stuff like Southwest is providing stuff to you that spirit puts like a $70 value on or something per ticket. Um, something like that. So obviously if they're doing fares, the justice department, then they're going to say that they're going to raise fares, which is true. And they're going to take out seats. So if they're going to make more money per seat, 
um, then they're obviously going to reduce capacity. Um, yeah, so tickets they, are going to go higher. The ticket prices, yeah. Spirit's ticket prices, however, are irrelevant. I mean, like I said, the actual price is, is usually more than double the ticket price. So, like, the ticket price is a teaser to get you to, to um, book with the airline, and then the actual price is different. Um, so... The average person is spending more than twice as much on spirit than the than the advertised fare. Um, so the 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 airlines match well in terms of uh, the kinds of planes they operate and stuff. But like they said, there's not a huge amount of overlap um, in terms of the gates and everything. So um, I don't know I that it's, it's cheaper interesting play because it's one where the merger are, or for example, the merger could not go through and the stock could yeah. be up. A good amount on that news because it's just trading so cheap and even where we currently are sitting i mean we're not that much higher i mean we're probably right where it was when it was announced i'm assuming if uh, you're at there, almost i mean the stock hasn't gone anywhere the stock has almost never been this cheap right i don't think so we could look at on a long-term data but certainly from a um 10-year perspective yeah now i mean it, uh, you're right it's probably the cheapest it's ever been yeah so, I mean, I, I may have a very mis, uh, you know, my, my overall conception of the airline industry and stuff may be very wrong, but you obviously, and you had another bid, obviously. So you had two airlines trying to buy this one. Mm -hmm. Um, the issue of, of course, is that although we know that the value to a private owner to, I mean, to a, a takeover in this case, uh, is greater than the stock price by a lot, it maybe can never happen. Because it may be that the government will never allow it. That this airline can never be bought mm -hmm. by any other airline. Um, and so in that case... But you that's might okay, say, though, well, if you're buying today. Well, the, what's this airline going to do, though? I mean, we can look at what their past history was. Uh, yeah, so you have operating margin there going back. Can you tell how low the operating margin got before the pandemic? I'm ignoring the pandemic. That might be controversial, but I'm going to ignore the fact they lost money during the time when they weren't flying. Just don't use the C word. That's all I'm asking. So okay. we don't get flagged. Uh, 2010, 9%. It looks like was the lowest operating margin. Okay. 9%. All right. So, you know, what's the right EV to sales on something that's worst year was 9%. And as I'd say, I think you should use three, you know, I, I would always use a three year average. And if you'll notice with the airlines, normally what will happen, as you can see there, I think, is you have probably had a particularly good year right before you had the bad year. You don't normally have a bunch of bad years in a row mm -hmm. like that. Um, so, but let's say 9%. And what's EV to sales on the stock right now? Uh, we have prices. Uh, we could pull up EV to sales. You're currently at 0.7. Okay. So it's quite cheap. Um, so you'd have to be at around one or something to have like a PE around 15 or something, you know, um, of course, like I said, this does have liabilities though. So that is something to keep in mind. It does not own all its planes and things like that. So, um, it also has some debt. Um, whereas like on a net basis, I would say Southwest really doesn't Southwest basically on a net basis owns everything. It has as much cash as debt. Um, is completely clean balance sheet and stuff. Um, so you do have some more risks here. And I also don't know that... And it's priced about the same way too. That's the problem. So, I mean, here's the thing. You can basically buy Spirit, and if you like it as much as other airlines, it's priced about the same. All airlines look cheap to me. And you have these deals in place that could go through. You know, they have a deal that they could win, obviously, and uh, it could go through. They could choose to fight it all the way through and win and, and that's possible um or there could be another deal with someone else at some point um 
or they could um, just continue as a business. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to check. I'm not sure if I know if I'm as comfortable with like the long-term capital allocation stuff of Spirit if it stays independent as Southwest. Um, but so I think um, it, certainly like if you're asking, I mean, it's of a stock that supposedly someone is buying out. It's incredibly cheap, right? It's like the cheapest. I mean, anything that's being bought, I mean, Activision's really expensive, what Microsoft is paying and stuff versus something like um, Spirit is really cheap. So, but the belief is that obviously it's been baked into the price and it's gotten worse and worse over time, but it's always been baked into the price that this deal is not that likely to go through. Um, so the downside here is if you buy Spirit, how much of it is really uncorrelated to the market and stuff and event driven? And how much are you just going to end up with owning a, an airline stock? But either way, I think it's probably better than owning like the market or something. So if you wanted to be just own Spirit instead of owning whatever else, I think it's probably better. Um, probably. But just, you know, I think a lot of people would have trouble stomaching that though. Deals falling apart and all that. So, um, but yeah, I'd expect in the long run that the stock will go up if the deal doesn't happen. For so. people though that have a problem with stomaching it, I mean, do you think mm -hmm. Spirit is a good a play? Because in the event that it doesn't actually go through the deal, it's like, wow, this is the stock could rip on that news because of where it's trading, super cheap. Or maybe that wouldn't happen. But I mean, it's trading cheap today. Where even if you're looking at it as just a normal stock investment, and as you had said, those are typically the best plays to look for as it relates to merger arbitrage. Yeah, I agree with that. But obviously the market doesn't see it the way I do. Because if it did, then it should be trading with very minimal spread. I mean, the 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 math of what spread it should trade at is not just based on the probability of um, it going through. It's the probability of it going through times the percent of the gain that you would have potential versus the probability of it not going through versus the percent of the loss. In any case, if a stock is likely to trade at the level of the buyout, then it needs to trade at no spread. Because when you multiply the probability of the loss times whatever the severity of that loss is, the severity is going to be nothing. So if you think this is like a $30 stock, if it's just free to trade in the long run, which I would assume that about $30 is right. It's hard to come up with something that's less than, I mean, where it's trading now, the things you have to input to try to get a $20 price on this are pretty aggressive assumptions. Now, you can assume that the airline business gets a lot worse, and it could with things like labor, um, you know. And so the airline business could always turn down. You could assume there's about to be a recession. You could, you know, um, there could be concerns for a lot of things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you try to value it like other stocks, say it should have a multiple like other non-airlines and stuff, um, and use past data to do that, you're going to get a price in the 30s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, How long could this yeah. take to work its way through the justice system? Hmm. I mean, it could, it could take a while. So, um, it could take a while. There's not a lot of ones that actually go through all the way. Uh, this looks like it might from what they're saying, like that this will really happen. Uh, a lot of times they back off when this happens. And obviously the government, uh, a lot of times does not go through with things. Um, it tries to get a lot of concessions and stuff normally ahead of time, agree to a deal instead of having to actually try it in court. Um, however, um, antitrust stuff does go 
to court more often than like SEC stuff, which like never does. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it could take a long time, but obviously, but like I said, unless they change the terms of the deal, you're collecting more on spirit shares is my memory. Um, that see a lot of these articles, that's the other thing. Uh, like we pulled from stuff like the articles don't necessarily explain it as well as I would like. For instance, like when they talk about the price of the deal, they say it's three point some, right? Well, what do they say it is? 3.8 billion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make sense because if I add the all the liabilities that I just said plus the market cap and stuff, I get a number that's bigger than that. Plus, I said that there's interim payments and stuff. So I don't know what, you know, I don't know what that is. In, are they doing only equity? I mean, JetBlue is going to assume whatever liabilities Spirit has and stuff. Plus, the deal has to take some amount of time to close, and they have to pay stuff in between. So I I wouldn't say that those are accurate. And I looked through a lot of articles which didn't get into the details of the original deal and what it is. So you need to look it up in the um, SEC filings for Spirit. Spirit's ticker is SAVE. If you go to, so S-A-V-E, if you go to the SEC stuff, uh, you don't have to do it now, but people can do this at home. Um, you can find the original deal and what it is. I think they had an 8K at some point where they said we're not doing the deal with um, Frontier and we're doing the deal with JetBlue and some updates on it and stuff. Or or they updated. There's a very recent 8K where they give an update of the deal as it is. But you'll have to find that kind of thing to actually read the terms of it and stuff. Kind of like you can be a stock market genius going through it and reading all the stuff that's actually in there. Um, but yeah, I would say what... I mean, the thing is there's some chance that a deal could go through or someone could buy it at a higher price. And um, it just doesn't seem like, why would it trade at a lower price? I don't know. But against that is the problem that if you look at most airlines where Spirit is trading, Spirit is trading as if it's like other airlines, that no one's trying to buy it and that it's just trading like them. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily cheaper than other airlines or that you'll necessarily do better in Spirit than you would in other airlines if they didn't have the problem. The other thing is, um, except for antitrust issues and stuff, since there's so much volume anyway in airline stocks, and then you have this arbitrage thing, it could be it should be easy for anybody to buy as much as they want. Um, but I haven't seen things where other people have come along trying to buy up a ton of it, given how cheap it's gotten. Um, yeah. So anyway, it looks cheap. But if you were managing ten billion, would you be interested in it? And purchasing it? Yeah, if I if I was managing ten billion, I probably have like twenty five percent of the portfolio in five different airlines. Wow. Well, there I you don't go. see any industry that's as attractive as the airline industry that I can tell. I mean, look at their prices. Mm-hmm. Right? What can we find? I can't find there's few things that I can find that are even airlines are like literally forty percent cheaper or something than almost any other industries I can find. Maybe energy and stuff that I don't understand well enough. Um I mean, let's take, okay, what are their price to EV to sales on these? What okay, are the American, sales American Airlines, 0.7. We said 0. Uh, United, was, or I'm sorry, we said Southwest is 0.7. We said Spirit was 0. 0.7. 0. We could look at United okay. right now. Uh, 0. 0.7. <laughs> They're all 0. 0.7 times. Yeah. Okay, EV to sales. 0. 0.7 times. All right, so that's EV to sales. Now, we know, I went through some government data with you and stuff, that the um, operating ratio for a lot of, for the industry overall, um, in the years before the pandemic, uh, was around 85, right? So um, for these to be priced 
as expensively as other stocks. So to do that math, we have, um, let's say, what would you say? Schiller, P, what, what's a normal PE in your mind? What do people say is the PE that's 15? Uh, you know, 15, okay. So we take 15. Tax rate is, we're going to say 25%. We'll be conservative. Okay. But no, we'll, be, we'll yeah, that's fine. So, um, well, no, let's say, let's say 21%. So, uh, yeah, no, let's say 25. So we take 15 times 0.75, right? We do that. And then that will give us the PE that will give us the, um, and EV to EBIT that it has to trade at, right? A stock to be at a normal EV to EBIT. Now, some of these are a little more complicated, like I said, because the liabilities and stuff, but we're seeing they're all trading around the same price. So for that reason, um, we would say that uh, these stocks, it depends on exactly how you do it, but basically what you're saying is it should be like, um, it should be like about 11 times or something. So what we're saying is like, if, if you are trading at, so let's say 0.7 is a good example. So these, we know what they're trading at. They're trading at 0.7 times. Um, now some of these might have convertible things in it that isn't captured by it, which could be a problem. Um, because of, they took deals and stuff. Um, yeah, I looked into Southwest and it's pretty meaningless. Um, so on the downside, it is meaningful on the upside. You, your upside's a little limited because they'll convert. Um, but the, uh, so the, what they should be trading at, so we can ask like what margin would they have? We said in the case of a spirit that their worst year was about 8%. We know, so Spirit's worst year was about 8%. And then we know that on average, the industry before the pandemic had been operating about a 15% operating margin. So that's your sort of range is about eight to 15, right? Then you take that and you divide that into, like we said, the the um, EV to sales, which is 0.7. So you take something like that. It's not even important to do that because we can see right away that all of those are too high, even the bottom range. And an 8% margin, 0.7 times sales is still too high. Um, so what is the exact right number? I don't know. But I could see these things trading at 1.5 times sales um, if you thought that that was normal um, for them to earn margins that high. If you think that their margins will be a lot lower, then it makes sense that they, you know, be, that they be priced lower. Um, and maybe there's expectations that they will have much lower margins in the future. It could be possible, I guess. I'm not sure where it'll go. Maybe labor. You know, where does it leak out of? Um, is it, you know, because why would it be price competition? Because if your load factors are as high as they are, then why are you trying to fill your planes up even more on the things? I mean, if you think about if the entire, you know, the if, if, the, if the entire network is on like a load factor of 80% or higher in some of these cases, I mean, that means that a lot of your, I mean, basically a lot of things are full. So I don't know why there'd be like a lot of price competition on that thing. Um, I, I think the fundamental issues that restrict competition in this industry going forward are not solved one way or the other by this merger happening or not. Um, I don't see that as a big factor in it. I mean, if you see Southwest and JetBlue, for instance, let's take Southwest and JetBlue. Some of the competition that they brought when competing is that they, uh, that I think gets overlooked, is that they fundamentally increase traffic to other airports or at other times of day. Um, so if you aren't an airline coming in and saying, okay, I'm going to increase, if there's three airports in New York that are popular or something, and you're not saying, okay, I'm going to increase afternoons at JFK 
when others weren't taking that time, or I'm going to bring a lot more traffic to Newark when it used to be at LaGuardia or whatever, unless you're doing something like that, like Southwest being in, I mean, we can use the example of Southwest. If Southwest didn't exist, if the government got what it wanted, FAA got what it wanted, there'd be no Dallas love. There are two major airports in Dallas, and one of them is there only because of Southwest. Um, this is repeated over and over again across the country in California and stuff is repeated in Florida. It's repeated, um, where there are major airports, um, that are serving other kinds of airlines where the budget airlines and stuff are in one place and, um, the legacy airlines are another one. Um, and so increasing traffic to those places if you want lower fares and stuff, then obviously you could build a lot more airports, make it easier to get to those things, do all sorts of things to support that. I don't think that the government is interested in having a lot more, um, multiple airports around cities, a lot more gates, um, a lot of stuff like that. So, um, otherwise the, the, the thing is, um, I, I just don't see it. So, I mean, having other airports, so being served by more airports in an area, um, filling up more around the clock and turning planes faster is all that I see in terms of the possibilities of really increasing competition over time in the industry and getting fares down. Um, so, I mean, if you want lower fares, that's more what you need is more infrastructure around things, turning the planes quickly and, and all that. I don't like really, I mean, spirit is a different way of paying, but I don't, I don't know that it's, some huge difference. And as you've seen Southwest over time got big, it converged with the other airlines so that now the other airlines are more like Southwest and Southwest is more like the other airlines. So I was just looking at that, Jeff, I was typing in on my other screen, um, because that's where I, we have the recordings and stuff. I try to pull it through, but I was looking at Delta and Delta is currently a market cap of 25 billion, uh, Southwest as we're looking at the screen right now is about 20 UAL and American Airlines is around 17 billion. What do you think Southwest did? Like what if you had to put something on uh, why Southwest was so successful and how before, you know, Southwest used to look or be completely different than the other airlines and now the other airlines look a lot like Southwest. What is it uh, that allowed Southwest to become so successful? Well, so Southwest was kind of lucky just in terms of when the time started. Um, so Southwest started in Texas before deregulation. So there been a, Southwest is a copy of an airline that had happened in California. Um, they had some issues and they decided the model that they were going to adopt was a, a model that had been used in California earlier, um, which is to avoid regulations by the federal government by flying only it, price regulations and stuff at the time um, by flying only within one state. And so they flew only within Texas by doing that. They grew big doing that. And then when deregulation came, they spread out from that. Also, they somewhat maybe even benefited weirdly or I don't know if they benefited. They might've been able to restrain themselves anyway, but with the issue with Dallas Love versus uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, they had to agree to an anti-Southwest bill in Congress um, that restricted them. So basically for decades, Southwest was only allowed to fly out of Texas into surrounding states, had to land, and then could fly from there to other states. So you could, for instance, fly from, from Texas to Oklahoma, but you couldn't just fly from Texas to Nebraska or something. You had to fly Texas, Oklahoma, then Nebraska. 
um, and that was a bill imposed on them, but because their their competitors and stuff didn't like um, the competition that they were getting from that, and and um, there was all the things we talked about with Dallas Love and everything. So they did that. That uh, combined with other things had them adopt the approach that they did. Um, they also did other things that were smart. Um, so one of them was that they um, did not spread themselves too thin in terms of how they went into markets. So their market share greatly underestimated like their um, competitive threat to other airlines because like where I grew up, for instance, no one knew what Southwest was. Um, they had no presence at all back then you know, 30 years ago in the, in New Jersey, New York, that area, they did not have a presence flying up and down between New York and Florida. In fact, when JetBlue came in, they focused on New York to Florida mainly because what JetBlue did is, and there's, you know, I read some of the books on JetBlue and stuff and talked about this is they basically said, what does Southwest not do? We're going to pick those routes that Southwest doesn't yet fly. Um, or isn't big in and focus on those. Um, and, and jet and Southwest had left an opening, which was that they did not want to go into congested airports. And so, um, because it would mess up their turnaround times, it would mess up their whole network that way. Um, and they, they were not willing to analyze too carefully if there were ways around that and that they could still operate effectively. And so JetBlue focused specifically on those. So it's not like an accident that JetBlue started with a big New York focus thing. They did that because they, they wanted to avoid competing directly with Southwest. Um, and so what Southwest would do is they go into an area, they'd, they'd get a lot of the traffic immediately because they would go in in a big way. They never went in small into a new market. Um, so instead of having a small presence in a lot of different markets, they would go very big into one market. They take a lot of the share very quickly. This is usually what happens in airline things. Um, you take a lot of the share very quickly. It settles down fast after that, but there's a brutal period just like there is in, you know, a ferry business or a bus business or whatever. If there's direct competition, you can lose a lot of money, but all airlines in the flying in there can lose a lot of money in a short period of time. And then one of them pulls out, um, and, and leaves it to the other, you know, or they settle down with whatever percentages it's going to be. Um, so totally different model that they had. And then as they grew over time, you know, sort of like when we're talking about Walmart, Southwest and Walmart grow up around the same time period, roughly. Um, they start to shift like in the nineties and stuff where the, you know, some of the results ramped down. Certainly as we saw, um, their results get more in line with others and all of that. Um, so, and, and then the other ones obviously merged a lot. Um, over time. The big thing that we talked about is really that there's a period where the new entrance died off. There's a huge amount of new entry and then that slowed down dramatically. So like in the 1990s, there was dramatic new entries and I flew some of them. Uh, so for instance, I, I flew airlines that flew just from um, New, uh, New York area to Florida and that's all that they did. Um, and um they, uh, we talked about, um, what was it? Uh, Harbor Diversified. What's the name of the company? The, uh, OGC yep, company Harbor Diversified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's Air Wisconsin. Um, you know, like those things were actually airlines at one time and that operate on their own, uh, you know, those kinds of things, even small planes like that, th- those are really small Canadian planes that were originally meant to be 
private jets that they started using for passenger stuff. Um, they, uh, th those companies like that, are, you know, at one time, many of those planes for companies like that were actually airlines, different small airlines. And then they either became the express service of these, you know, whether it's Delta or United or whatever, you know, or all these companies that even that merged into them had their own ones that did this, that fed in. And, um, and they, instead of having to compete with them, so they don't compete with them. Instead, the, those airlines bring people to the, um, Chicago or wherever they want to move them from. Um, and I think in that case, that's where they're moving them. Uh, so a lot of those airlines went down. I mean, we, I think I talked about that. The, the numbers are dramatic that way. I mean, um, of the new entrants, the numbers coming down is big. So the number of airlines on average has been declining for 20 some years or something, but you know, but that's not that weird. Like, um, it's, it's hard to say how much of an effect that has and everything. Cause we've talked about, you know, the number of public companies has been going down since, you know, until the SPAC stuff had been going down since the early two thousands. Um, in the United States, almost no banks were being formed after the financial crisis. And, um, but like at first they're small, so it doesn't, immediately have that huge effect. The fact that no banks are formed in 2010, 2011, 2012 isn't having a huge effect, but in the long run, it may have a big effect. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was one of the very big points that I took away from the government statistics on that is how much the increase was purely from about a 15 or so year period that from, uh, deregulation happens. It takes a couple years till things kick in. 90s very big in terms of the number of companies um, being formed and the competition that you can see and stuff. But by the later 90s, uh, things calm down a lot, and it seems like there's a big shift uh, in the industry, and things keep getting better and better from that point. This is disguised by, you know, so let's say 1997, let's say, is where competition turns to where it's now becoming a less competitive industry or something. I don't know if that's the exact year, but there's certainly a strong trend of the last 25 years or something of decrease in competition in this industry. But that's disguised by there's 2001, everyone loses money, right? Then it happens again, 2008, because you have September 11th, you have financial crisis, and then you have uh, the pandemic. So basically you have those events. And so... It was easy, what I was saying is it's easy until looking at it to realize, oh, you know, this is disguising a lot, that these are one-time events. Um, we talk about non-recurring things all the time, right? And usually they do recur and everything. So when looking at it, you know, I talk about the semiconductor industry or something. I'd look at the airline industry and say, oh, well, how different is it really? I mean, yes, it maybe it's gotten a little better or whatever, but it looks a lot like that. But, you know, uh, it's different because... 2000, the semiconductor industry implodes. And so does the airline industry, you know, 2001. But the difference is, the, you know, the bubble things that happen with semiconductors are maybe a somewhat recurring phenomena, right? But the, the terrorist attack is not. Um, financial crisis is a terrible financial crisis that's not brought on by uh, the airlines themselves. That maybe it's a once every 50 year event. I don't know, but it's not a very common event. Um, and then pandemic. And, you know, with the exception of the uh, financial crisis, I would expect that certainly the response would be totally different if these things happen again. So I don't think that air traffic would end up dropping anywhere near as much in the next pandemic. I don't think that the, in the next terrorist attack, um, it will the traffic will drop the way that it did after the first one. So 
Uh, so that's just my feeling on that. And then, and if you take those kinds of factors out and think about it, then you go, oh, the industry is pretty good. The offset to that is th- those problems may be why the industry is that good. Because those weird recurrent one-off events that happened may have actually discouraged people from starting airlines, may have forced airlines to merge together, may have, it may have been those events that actually created a lot of the less competition and stuff because there were so many adverse events happening. So that could be the offset. Whereas if those things don't happen again, eventually the industry will get bad. And that's probably, you know, that's potentially true at some point there'd be a lot more competition and stuff. So it's possible. So Spirit Airlines or Southwest, gun to your head, what do you choose? Uh, well, I would choose Southwest because I don't mind being in airlines for the longer term. But if you're just looking, you don't want to be in airlines, but you're looking for something to own this year for whatever reason, um, then Spirit sounds fine. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, uh, be sure to check out all of our work. Uh, best place to do that is to go to focuscompound.com and follow me on Twitter at, at Focused Compound. Uh, wherever you are listening or watching us right now, make sure you hit the subscribe button and a thumbs up. Leave a rating and review. That all goes a long way for us. Uh, we are going to be in Omaha this year for the Berkshire meeting. We will be there uh, the week of. Uh, the actual meeting is Saturday, but we are planning to be in Omaha uh, for the entire week. So if you're interested in learning about our money management services and would like to schedule a meeting, you could reach out to me at andrewredfocuscompound.com. We'll sit down, grab some coffee, and talk about everything that is focused compounding with Jeff and myself. I thank everybody so much for all the support and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.